back to Sleep for Performance Radio, episode number 18. Today I am speaking with Madison Jones. Madison has recently completed her PhD thesis with the University of Western Australia, the West Australian Institute of Sport, and in conjunction with the Australian Institute of Sport. Maddie discusses her uh, research approach and some of her findings in this episode. Particularly, she was interested in looking at the effect of electronic devices on sleep. Now, you may be interested in this episode because in the popular media, there's been lots of discussion around the negative effects of electronic devices. And in this episode, Maddie discusses that that may not be the case and maybe some other things that we can look at as opposed to just looking at screen time. So we get into things like activity, um, on those electronic devices uh, prior to sleep, how that affects uh, highly trained or elite athletes. Maddie also discusses the different methodologies that she used in her PhD um, for lab-based and field-based um, investigations. So this is a, an episode highly focused on research. However, if you are, a, I suppose, a serious amateur athlete or even working with elite athletes or highly trained athletes, uh, this is going to be a podcast that's going to be of interest to you. So hope you enjoy this episode. As always, um, the show notes will be at sleepforperformance.com.au. We're available on iTunes and Podbean. And if you have any feedback on the podcast or you'd like to hear some different guests on the podcast, email me at ianduniken at sleepforperformance.com.au. Hope you enjoy the episode. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Are you sure? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> All right, Maddie, welcome to Sleep for Performance Radio podcast. Thank you for having me, Anne. I know, I had no choice. I had to have you. <laughs> I've been talking to you for the last four years, so I had to have you on, didn't I? So, Maddie Jones is recently finished her PhD around the same time as me here at the University of Western Australia, and myself and Maddie share similar research interests around sleep and performance although we do come from two complete different backgrounds. Obviously, you guys know me and my background, but Maddie, what's your um, sort of background, education, uh, sports you've been involved in? How did you get into the area of sleep, recovery, and performance research? Yeah, sure. So I'm from a sports science background, um, predominantly, I guess. I completed my Bachelor of Science uh, majoring in exercise and health at UWA and then completed an honours year after that at UWA as well, looking at, um, we compared some laboratory-based kayak testing protocols in elite athletes. So that's where I started to make my transition to working particularly in sports science and particularly with elite athletes. Um, I then went to Canberra for a year and did a one-year internship at the Australian Institute of Sport. And when I was over there, I, I sort of knew that I wanted to do a PhD eventually and um, used the year to get different experiences, um, learn about new things within sports science and work out what was really my interest. Um, I had a little bit of exposure to another researcher, Laura Jewell, over there, who was looking at sleep in athletes. Um, it was something really foreign to me, but seemed really interesting. Um, so I sort of kept that in the back of my mind. And when I finished that year and came back to Perth, um, I had to come up with a PhD topic and Georgia Roman, who uh, you've interviewed before and who uh, was a student at UWA, had just finished her honours project and she looked at sleep in athletes. 
Um, and so there was a possibility to continue looking at that area um, in a PhD project. So. Uh, <laughs> the microphone just fell over. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, so that topic was sort of in the works, and because I had that interest in sleep already, um, I jumped at that opportunity, and yeah, okay. that was four years ago. <laughs> and, and so when you kind of, you, you heard about this area of sleep and recovery and performance, was there any reason why you gravitated towards it? Like, did you sleep bad as a kid? Was it something that you were just really interested in when you did your undergraduate degree? Did you kind of look at it in your honours and go, oh, this is weird? Or how did you kind of, what hooked you on it? Because particularly when you're younger, a lot of people don't really care about sleep. Mm-hmm. So what hooked you on this? It was never really on my radar during undergrad or honours because my research and my studies didn't really have anything to do with sleep. Um, I was a fairly bad sleeper when I was a kid. I had a bit of insomnia. Yeah. Um, I'd you know, walk around the house for hours at a time. Mum and Dad keep sending me back to my room. Um, I like to think the main reason I was interested in sleep is because I like to sleep. Um, and <laughs> when we go into sleep science, we learn very quickly that if we love to sleep, that's not a good reason because you don't get to sleep yourself because you're watching everyone else sleep. And yeah. Isn't that weird? It's terrible. Obviously, me and you don't work as full-time sleep scientists in a laboratory, but there is many, for those of you who don't know, there is many sleep technicians out there that work full-time just doing nights. Oh. watching people sleep so they set people up with the whole polysonography to let them go to bed they sit in a control room and observe them overnight and they're basically doing night shift and it seems kind of ironic in a, in a field that's there to improve sleep that we have so many people who don't sleep correctly when they're either working as a sleep tech in a lab or like what me and you did undertaking our own experiments for sure it's like yeah. you're trying to tell people how to sleep better and how to improve their sleep when you're not able to follow those recommendations as well so my heart definitely goes off to anyone that has to do overnight work yeah. I, just, I certainly couldn't do it and I certainly couldn't perform at a high level in that sort of field so yeah yeah it's, it's very difficult and that's one of the reasons um, well it's one of the things that don't miss about being in the military or one of the things that don't miss about being in mining you know sort of being a, working at irregular hours it's mm-hmm. just horrible and when we conducted some studies here at the Centre for Sleep Science at the University of Western Australia I don't know what did we do like 10 nights over like 2 months 10 nights each probably because we shared the load mm-hmm. for me that was horrendous like it was just absolutely yeah. wrecked me so you know I had to do doing that full time you yeah. know for me you know I was it was a, a weeping mess at home the next day. Oh, that makes me feel better because so was I. It no. was like the end of the three months or something and just yeah. you didn't have energy during the night to do anything because you, know, yeah. you were tired and then during the day you didn't have energy to do anything and you were just an emotional basket case. <laughs> there was a few Fridays because I, I was doing the Thursday nights and then there was a few Friday afternoons. I, I must have met around four o'clock. I just felt like crying. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know the truth. Yeah. The forty-year-old baby. Um, so that's that's um, that's really interesting, Maddie. So you kind of came back here to, to Perth in Western Australia, and you wanted to start your PhD program, which obviously lasts anywhere from three to five years. Mm-hmm. I think the average I heard recently was four point three years. Um, oh, very precise. Right, yeah, that could be just I could be just making it up. Um, what I did what I did remember was though that the people who submit a PhD is a ninety nine point seven percent pass rate. I did remember that statistic. Well, that's good. I like that statistic. <laughs> so when you started this PhD, Mike, what was the overall aim of your thesis? What were you trying to investigate? What were you trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. So I suppose the, yeah, the 
the general premise of it was sleep in athletes, but more specifically, um, I wanted to look at how using electronic devices in the evening affected sleep in athletes. So when I'm saying electronic devices, I mean things like using phones, using laptops, using tablets, watching TV, um, how that has an impact on our sleep because I mean you hear about it all the time in the in the media you know on on social networking sites on the news all that sort of thing that using phones is bad before you go to sleep don't do it because the blue light is going to stop your melatonin from being produced and you're not going to sleep and then you're going to die like that's how severe it sort of sounds and so I was like okay then well that's how I thought anyway it's very dramatic for those who are on your own just a little dramatic um but yeah, so it seemed like this was a major issue. I said, okay, well, you know, electronic devices are really popular. I use my phone every night before I go to sleep. I'm always on my electronic device, so maybe this is worth looking into. Um, and, you know, there's a lot going around as well that has sleep is really important for athletes. Um, and because I was from that sports science background, I thought, well, maybe this is a really great way to, to look at the recovery side of things. So, you know, can we just change the way an athlete sleeps? Is that going to improve their performance? Yeah. Um, yeah, so looking at that specific topic of how can we manipulate electronic device use in the evening to try and improve athletes' sleep so that they can then perform better the next day in training or competition. Yeah. And so when so you had those kind of um, the overall aims or of, the, of, the, of the whole PhD thesis for you, what sort of groups then did you kind of select or speak to to work with? What was the, what was the groups you were most interested in? Mm-hmm. So... Um, initially what we did was we wanted to look at sleep in just a variety of athletes so we got individual sport athletes team sport athletes people that were sort of at a a higher sort of level so that either represented their state or their country just because that's the population that I was aiming at looking at Um, so we started off really general and then we moved down um, into more team-based specific um, sports so we looked at netball players um, and netball. Netballs, yeah. So for anybody who's not familiar with netball, can you just give a sentence or two about what netball is? Because oh, I never experienced netball until I moved to Australia 15 years ago. And yeah. I was like, I don't understand that. It's like basketball, but no one's moving. <laughs> That's pretty much how I'd explain it. As okay. soon as you catch the ball, you stop. Um, yeah, so it's predominantly a female sport, but males can play socially, um, that I'm aware of anyway. Um, yeah, it is very much like basketball. You throw a ball around, you try and put it in a hoop either end of the court at the at the correct end of the yeah. court um yeah and once you've caught the ball you aren't allowed to move your feet so you have to stay in that position um and is that yeah. an olympic sport uh, i think so i know that it's at the commonwealth games because i've played i've seen it there i'm sure I have. okay i actually don't really know i don't know either okay. <laughs> I, 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 I really don't I really don't care i'm, I'm, I'm just interested i don't know if i spent hours worried about i don't know i've Let's Google that. Let's Google yeah, while we're here. And while, while I'm Googling, is uh, this an Olympic sport? Can you also tell us what countries it's predominantly uh, played in? Like oh. what countries predominantly play netball? Australia obviously plays it. Um, New Zealand, uh, England. I'm not sure which other sports. That's it. So there's three countries. I was just oh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure there'd be more than that. I'm not an expert in netball, so I can't really... Exactly. Well, here's the answer from Google, and Shopping. you might be might be surprised or not surprised, and this is how bad our knowledge is of athlete, <laughs> athletes and athletic sports and, and all that. Netli- netball is an Olympic recognized sport, a status attained in 1995 after a 20 year period of lobby- lobbying. Lobbying? It has never been played at the Summer Olympics. 
but with with recognition of form. What I don't get this. How can recognize as an Olympic sport, but not an Olympic sport. It has never been played at the Summer Olympics, but with recognition, a formal requirement for inclusion is met. The absence at the Olympic Games was seen by Nepal. Maybe that was before that, is it? I don't know. It says here IOC recognised it in 1995, but never featured at the Games. Is that beforehand or since? Oh, well, just give me an answer. Suspense is killing us, Ian. Netball <laughs> is an amazing sport, and it was very sad for us not to be at the Olympic Games. Okay, anyway, let's move on. Um, <laughs> Sorry, there's netball people screaming, you asshole. Anyway, I'm sorry. I just, yeah, I do things that people don't like either. So there was netball. Yeah. Um, um, and we also looked at water polo athletes as well. Which is like netball in the water. <laughs> a little bit more aggressive, I believe. Yeah, I didn't realise. We were watching water polo at a public pool one day. And my wife was telling me she got background in human movement from her undergrad and she worked with some water polo players. And she said, said it's really aggressive. It's not like a form of rugby in the water, but they do things like don't cut their toenails, scratch oh each gosh. other, like, you know, punch under the water, yeah. all that. So if there's any water polo players out there, please email me and tell me all the dirty tactics that you do. Because <laughs> once I heard that, I was like, oh, what am I playing now? Yeah, when we are now um, doing our undergrad degree for sports science, one of the practical units was to play water polo and learn how to play water polo. But I didn't like the idea of that, and I'm not a very strong swimmer, so I just yeah, pretended yeah. I couldn't really swim. So I got to go in the group that wore little floaty belts, and we just floated around in the water oh, like <laughs> rather than playing. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm a crap swimmer, yeah. And I, I don't know about, you know, sort of treading water and then trying to get yourself vertical oh, out of water. It's so hard. It's crazy. Yeah. Okay, so you have water polo... Netball. netball. So netball on the land, netball in the water. Yeah. Water polo people are going to kill him. What else did you have? So those were, that's why we went, you know, the team sport, the, team. Um, yeah. the pathway. But then we had an opportunity to test some triathletes as well. And that's obviously not a team sport. That's a very individualised sport. Now, this is an Olympic triathlon distance, which is the 1.5k swim, the 40k bike ride and 10k run. Yeah, so yeah. the. So we're not the talking athletes, about full Ironman. We're just no, talking about not full Ironman, yeah. just yeah. Olympic distance. So they were yeah. only developmental athletes. They were about 18 years old, sort yeah. of thing. So, you know, still working up um, in their careers, but they were all competing at quite a high level. Um, but yeah, so we thought it would be interesting to, you know, we had the opportunity to test that group, so throw them into the mix and see how it compared to team sports, whether there was a difference there. Yeah. Um, which there wasn't. Yeah, and then you did some stuff with basketball as well. Yeah, so we did a little side study um, in conjunction with some of your research as well, um, and that was with the female basketball players in Perth. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so again, another team sport, another elite group of athletes, which was yeah really great to be able to work with such high caliber athletes. So let's walk back from from those and, and talk about what was the goal of each of those studies. So with the basketball players, the Perth Lynx, which was here in, in Perth, which are one of the top teams the last two years have been in the finals. Um, what was the goal of your research with the Perth Lynx? Yeah, so with the, the Lynx players, what we wanted to do was um, use an elite athlete population to test a cognitive performance test. So basically what we were doing was we wanted to give them a test where we could see how alert they were, how quickly they could respond to stimuli and how long they could concentrate for, I guess. It's a, a combination of all those sorts of um, factors we term it vigilance or psychomotor vigilance um, so uh, what we do at the moment is there's a 10 minute test to do that and what you do is you stare at an ipad it's got a little rectangle in the middle of the screen and then at a random interval a number or a timer will start within that rectangle and as soon as you see the timer start you've got to tap the screen yeah. or press a button and that's sort of your reaction time i guess to the stimulus the stimulus or the timer goes away you wait for the next timer to start 
and again you respond as quick as you can and you do that for 10 minutes um, and I trialed that and that was painful <laughs> it's a long time to concentrate for so what we were trying to look at was whether we had to use the 10 minute test or whether we could do shorter tests because um, the problem being 10 minutes is quite a long time and when you're testing elite athletes you don't necessarily have the luxury of using them to do research studies whenever you need them you have to work around them a lot in those practical kind of settings so to find a shorter test would be amazing in making that easier for us to implement testing with that population. So we looked at a three minute test and a five minute test as well, um, as well as the 10 minute test. Um, and those test version, uh, durations had been used previously, yeah. so that's why we went with them. Um, so we basically got the, the basketball players to complete all three tests in the morning and the evening for a whole week. Um, and what we wanted to get from that was to see whether we could get similar performance measures from each of the tests, um, which would tell us that a shorter test was you know, similar to a longer test and we could use that as a substitute. Um, so we looked at the data from that um, and what, basically what we found was that the athletes responded slightly differently in the shorter tests. Um, it sort of makes sense in a way because you're only concentrating for three minutes as opposed to 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you do get a lot more fatigue from doing the longer tests. So the tests, you know, can't really be compared with each other. So you couldn't do a 10 minute and then a three minute and say, oh, well, someone improved, someone didn't improve. You just, yeah. they're not on the same path. But you could use the shorter tests, probably the five minute was what we found would be better than the three minute. So you could still use the five minute okay. and use that in athletes. So it's still cutting off half the time, which means that, you know, that's still you know, really helpful with your practical yeah. experiments. So you could use a five minute psychomotor vigilance test. So the test, the psychomotor vigilance test, often referred to as PVT, which you would mm -hmm. see a lot in, and traditionally it hasn't been used in sports, mainly in shift workers or lab-based studies where they've been looking at stuff. It's not been, I, I don't know too many kind of sports papers, but the three minute was developed for use in aerospace for, for mm -hmm. um, astronauts really, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. I think it was used on the International Space Station. Yeah. And so that's kind of one of the reasons why you looked at having this inside in, included in the in the this sort of the I suppose the test of ten to five and a three. Uh but like you're saying the five at least at half the time. So it's pretty uh, it's pretty interesting. What was the feedback you got from athletes doing that type of test? Because it sounds quite boring. Yeah, um <laughs> yeah, I don't think they really enjoyed it so much. Um, they did really well to push through and do the yeah. whole protocol, which I sort of attribute to them being professional athletes as well. You know, they're, they're going to do their best or whatever they're asked to do. Um, but yeah, it was quite draining. And even we practiced um, before, and I, I did a few practice runs, and gosh, like, yeah, it was difficult to maintain concentration for that long. Was, you know, 10 minutes plus yeah. five plus three twice a day, like, that's, that's a fair chunk of time they've got to dedicate to staring at a screen, which also then leads us into maybe it's going to affect their sleep. So that wasn't great either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's, it's okay. Yeah. And that was the nature of the study, and we weren't looking at devices and sleep at that stage. Yeah. Um, but we got some interesting information out of it of how we could use that study um, so really, how we could use that test. So really kind of the, the conclusion or the recommendation from that paper um, is that if you're going to use PVT in athletes at the five minute test, it's just as good as a 10 minute. Would that be right? It should be, yes. It should be. Obviously, it depends a little bit on different types of conditions. So the PVT is traditionally used with sleep deprivation and sleep loss studies. So you're looking yeah. at performance decrements over time. In this study, they weren't sleep deprived at all. So it was just 
how did it compare in the morning, the evening, over days? So if you were looking at athletes that were being sleep deprived, you might have to just you know have a look again to double check. But our studies indicate it probably is all right to use that short duration test at least in a non-sleep deprived state. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to look at that in athletes in sleep de- sleep deprivation studies, like you say. But given the fact that it's been kind of done to death in shift workers and so on, you'd be like, okay, it can be used. And then with your study, it's applicable or appropriate. I think what would be interesting to use it is in jet lag studies when people travel and more circadian disruption to see then, is there an effect on the time of day plus the sleep deprivation? Because I think that would be really interesting. You land, you know, you go from like Perth to Johannesburg, for example, there's a time difference and you get off the plane, you've maybe flown overnight. Then you get off. You got the circadian misalignment. You got sleep deprivation from sleeping bad on the plane, mm-hmm. and then start to use that data plus the sleep data to start predicting when players should be ready to play. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's how I kind of would like to see those tests being run because I think my biggest criticism of research in the sleep world is that a lot of it is very kind of theoretical or lab based and it's inferred, but mm-hmm. no one's really coming up with practical solutions of what to do on the ground, or very few. Yeah. Especially in the in the sports world, there's 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 few there's mm-hmm. few really practical solutions. Now that we're coming to you know the end of our research, I'm I'm tending to think that the problem with sleep research is that it's not individualized. I don't think we can necessarily say that you know for example these are the top ten tips for improving your sleep and they apply to every single person. And you know that's one of the limitations of research that you have to have you know yeah. large sample sizes and that. But I think yeah. that. Um, you know, we sort of need to start moving a more individualized approach. I would fully, I fully agree with you, Maddie. I, I think it's, I think it's a, I think it's um, we're doing ourselves and we're doing the athletes and our research groups a disservice by bundling them on the group. There is so much inter variability, inter individual variability, mm-hmm. and we know that when we when we graph stuff ourselves and we start looking at our data, some nights. And when we work with statisticians, they look at us going, there's no way one guy's sleeping four hours and another guy's sleeping 10 hours. Mm-hmm. But that's the range. That is the range. And the link for the individual performance may not always be there. Mm-hmm. You know, so the guy who sleeps 10 necessarily doesn't play better than the guy who sleeps four, for example. I know people who are sleeping less than six hours a night playing professional sports and representing their country. Yeah. So... You know, the link isn't always clear. I think you're right. I think individual application for for sleep science and sort of performance definitely is the way to go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the the prime examples for me of you know individual differences and you know someone being a potential outlier is in the the study that we did with the netball players. So they came into the Centre for Sleep Science at the University of Western Australia for full polysonography sleep studies. Um, and we measured saliva melatonin before they went to bed as well um, because we were looking at electronic device use beforehand. Um, but the reason I bring it up is that you know, seven of the eight athletes all had very similar um, melatonin levels, but one athlete was so much higher than the others, regardless of what condition she was in, she was just always higher. And so, you know, traditionally she might be treated as an outlier, but in reality, it's just that she's very different to the others. Yeah. And it doesn't mean it's wrong, it just means it's different. And so the approach that suits the, the other seven wouldn't necessarily suit her. And so she needs to yeah. always be treated, you know, as a case study, I guess. You know, how, how is she different to the others? Why is she different to the others? 
Yeah. Puts her in that position. I think I think you're right. And we get criticised by article when we submit scientific articles for publication. We get criticised by reviewers about sample sizes and having more people. But then we get more variability. I would like to see um, the what I would call binning or grouping. Mm-hmm. And I think, like for example, you had yeah, athletes. You would have two distinct groups there: the seven and the one. Yeah. You know, and it, and then people. But the, the problem is then that start saying the groups aren't balanced. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is this is a challenge we keep, keep encountering. But I, I could easily see, and I want I wanted to do it beforehand. I would like to bin people in different groups and say these are, for better or worse, these are like you know, poor sleepers or less than six hours. These are six to seven. These are seven to nine. Here's the performance variables for these guys or these girls, whatever it might be, whatever team, mm-hmm. and start looking at it like that. And the same with shift workers as well, because some people are really good at managing shift work. And from some of my work in mining, I remember having a conversation with a guy two years ago, and he's like. I've been doing shift work for a year. I just can't do it. I've done I've done X Y Z A B C, you know, blah blah blah. I'm like, man, you just can't do shift work. Mm-hmm. He's like, what? I'm like, yeah. Look at the watch from your actigraphy device. You just should not be doing shift work. You cannot adapt. Some people just cannot do night shift permanently. Mm-hmm. You know, well, well, as in, he was doing days and nights and having a set of time off. But when he would do the night shift, the guy was getting like ninety minutes sleep during the day. Oh my gosh. You know, and it was unsafe for him in a workplace but from a long term health perspective it was poor as well Definitely. so I fully back up your point about that it's really interesting to bring that up mm-hmm. so um, back on that netball study um, can you just explain to us what is polysomnography or the PSG and why you took saliva to look at melatonin and cortisol sure thing and what's the function of those yeah so PSG is Basically, we were looking at a whole range of different signals from the body to detect whether the person's awake or asleep and what stage of sleep they're in. So one of the main things we look at that is electroencephalography, where we stick electrodes on the participant's head. So you stick six little electrodes in their hair, if they've got hair, or just on the scalp. Um, And that way we can look at their brain signals while they're awake or asleep. Uh, We also put a couple of electrodes next to their eyes so we can see eye movements. Um, and that one allows us to see when the person's falling asleep and they've got slow rolling eye movements or when they're in that dreaming stage of sleep which is REM or yeah. rapid eye movement and it's pretty cool because we actually see their eyes darting around inside their head while they're asleep um, there's also a few other sensors you put on so things on the chin to look at chin muscle activity we do some uh, some heart measurements I guess to look at ECG traces um, respiratory effort um, airflow pulse oximetry so how much oxygen is in the blood and some leg movements as well um so and this is the top yeah top notch gold standard measurement of sleep yeah definitely so So you can't get any better than this pretty much (laughs) yeah and you have to be in a lab through this level this is the top level it makes it a little bit limiting because it is the gold standard but it's not very practical like ecologically valid it's not someone sleeping in their own bedroom at night it's not you know someone sleeping comfortably and rolling around yeah. however they want you know you have to come into a sleep center um, you have to be wired up you do have a lot of wires on you all connected to the walls so you know you can still move around but it's limiting in that and it is a, a little bit daunting i suppose that's quite scary having all those wires on and you're laying in bed and you're like i can't move um so yeah, it definitely changes your normal sleep environment a little bit but Mm. it's the only way to to accurately detect whether someone is awake or asleep and on what stage of sleep they are. Actigraphy tries, actigraphy does its best but it's not 
it's not as good as PSG. And actigraphy is like having a Fitbit on or one yeah. of these watches that measures sleep. So those motion yeah. sensors. Yeah, motion sensors, yeah. Um, I wore one of them once and I was freaking out about it the whole time. My sleep was really bad because I was laying still and I was like, oh, but I haven't fallen asleep yet. But the watch probably thinks I am asleep. So mm. I'd shake my wrist every now and then just to tell it I was still awake and then that kept me awake. So, you know, <laughs> it's not exactly that bad, but yeah, yeah. it's a limiting factor yeah. with using those devices compared to PSG. And really... We only use PSG for either trying to assess and diagnose a sleep disorder mm-hmm. or in these kind of experimental conditions where we're looking at something. It's not, you wouldn't say to someone come in for five nights of PSG and then that's representative of your sleep. For sure, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. you couldn't do that. So the reason we chose to do PSG for this study was because it was our first real experimental study um, to you know look at this interaction between electronic device use and sleep. And what we did was with our eight athletes, our eight netball athletes, we asked them to do four different conditions, one night of each of the conditions. And what those conditions were, was looking at either um, them using an electronic device, so a tablet in this instance, for two hours before they went to bed, or not using a tablet for two hours before they went to bed. So we could see that distinction between electronic device use um, and not. The other distinction we wanted to look at was the type of task that you can perform on the device. So on one hand, we looked at how they went with performing puzzles. So something like crosswords and word searches and logic puzzles, where they had to think and engage in the task and you know, use cognitive skills to complete it. And the other condition was a passive task. So we gave them some reading material, which we deemed to be quite boring to them. So you know, they're like 18 year old, females and we gave them magazines about finance and boats and how to set up a medical practice um, so it was supposed to be the real opposite of that where there's no real engagement in that task yeah so the conditions were either using an ipad to do the puzzles or to read and then no ipad so paper-based puzzles and reading so we, we used the psg to be able to really accurately detect how long it took the participant to fall asleep after completing those tasks and did it affect their total sleep duration, the amount of time they spent in each stage of sleep, um, how often they work throughout the night, um, all those sorts of sleep variables. Um, we also did, as you mentioned, the salivary melatonin and cortisol measures. Um, what we did with those was we measured, uh, we took saliva measurements before they completed the two hour task and after the two hour task. So the reason for that is, as I said before, uh, we're led to believe that using an electronic device suppresses the release of melatonin. And so what the idea behind that is that the blue light emitted from electronic devices influences your brain and stops melatonin from being released. So we thought if we measure it before they use an iPad and then we measure it after they use an iPad, we shouldn't see any increase in melatonin because it's been suppressed, it's been stopped. So that was the point of doing the measurements before and after. But interestingly, we didn't see any differences between any of the conditions. We still Mm. saw increases in melatonin, regardless of what task they were doing, regardless of whether or not they're on an iPad. So using an iPad did not suppress their melatonin compared to not using an iPad. Which is contrary to the findings in the general population. Exactly. Uh, We're not the only study that's found that. Um, There have been a couple of others that have also found no changes in melatonin. Um, So it was initially a little bit scary because we thought, oh gosh, what have we done wrong? 
Um, but we don't think it's that, and that's sort of you know why I tend to talk about the, the individual differences as well, because I don't think that everyone's necessarily the same. Um, I suppose there's different factors with each of the study protocols as well. So with ours, we had the room lights on at the same time that they were completing the studies, because those in the paper-based conditions couldn't do it in the dark, so we had to have some kind of light yeah, on. Yeah. So whether the lights that were in the room had a confounding effect and meant that the electronic device light wasn't so uh, wasn't so detrimental, I guess. Um, so that's certainly a factor as well. Um, it may also be just that the type of the device or the amount of light produced and you know, reflected from the device is not necessarily sufficient to inhibit melatonin. Some of these studies that uh, sort of guide the the recommendation that we shouldn't be exposed to blue light are because a, a light bulb was shone in someone's face for five hours before they went to bed and then the researchers concluded that they had trouble sleeping. That would make me more mad than hit my melatonin. <laughs> I, think that, I think that would increase my cortisol to rage. Yeah, could do. Um, but I suppose you know when you're in that sort of situation well no wonder you couldn't fall asleep really but when you've just got a little device in front of your eyes that probably well it's very different to shining a light in someone's face so i don't know that those findings can be translated to electronic device use per se which is why it's interesting then to note that maybe electronic device use before bed isn't so bad after all not for everyone or not for every instance so really from this study in these athletes, very specific, there was no relationship between the activity or the type that of sort of yep. method of the delivery of the activity, be it a trying device or paper. That's correct. Now, for some people sitting at home going, you know, oh, that's great. Then I can jump on my laptop mm-hmm. and, you know, finish off a business case or work on some engineering drawings at half ten whilst I'm in bed. That may not be the case. No. Well, that's completely different. To, yeah. You know, it's not the same as you know, completing a puzzle. Yeah. You know, social media isn't the same as doing a puzzle. So, yeah, the study is limited in that we could only do a couple of different types of activities because we were trying to control for that. So, yeah, I definitely wouldn't advise that people can just go and do their work until 2 o'clock in the morning and then fall asleep straight away or do it every single night um, because I definitely don't think that's the case. Um, but it's just that maybe it's not the be-all and end-all. If you have to send an email before you go to bed, you don't then have to go, oh, no, I'm not going to sleep tonight and my life is over kind of thing. And if you're an athlete and you, you do check social media before you go to sleep, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to perform the next day and you're going to lose your gold medal. I think it just means that we can be less cautious about it. You know, we don't have yeah. to go and do it, but we also don't have to necessarily avoid it. I think there's a difference in the task. So for me, for example, if I go to bed, let's say, at 9 o'clock, and I'm going to read for half an hour or listen to the radio for half an hour to fall asleep at 10, well, <laughs> I'm not going to be between 7 and 9 doing emails, working on stats, you know, doing any other sort of technical cognitive work. I might, you know, dig around on Facebook, look at Twitter, Instagram, watch some silly show on Netflix, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm not going to watch things like, you know, martial arts or fights or a high action movie that's going to pump me up because I know, for me, that's going to make me, you know, probably quite increase, increase, you know, probably increase my cortisol, makes me quite, you know, quite active and I can't sleep so I know not to do those things and I think that's again individual difference some people can watch those things and switch completely off other people need a, a process of winding down for sure yeah. and you mentioned reading a book like 
often it's suggested that people read a book before they go to bed. I'm not good with reading a book before I go to bed because I get really excited about what's going to happen. And then four hours later, I'm still reading because I'm only halfway. Not if you read some of the books I read. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so it's definitely a very individualised approach. And I think that's part of each person figuring out what is appropriate for them to help them wind down and help them relax in the evening. And you make that part of your routine. So if it's that half an hour before you go to bed, you and have a shower and you brush your teeth and you take your makeup off or whatever it is and you know maybe you read or maybe you listen to some music or maybe you write a to-do list for the next day mm. so that you know what's coming up you just work out what works for you um, if it involves an electronic device then so be it but figure out how you respond to that and if you don't get affected by it then maybe it's not so bad so Maddie, you did this study in a lab but then you did some applied studies in the field using actigraphy you know with the water polo yeah. uh, team and the triathletes individual athletes as well mm-hmm. very much field based um, using actigraphy and these were at the Australian Institute of Sport um, can you talk a little bit about those type of studies and the difference in those findings compared to this lab one sure so the lab one as I said I suppose was the nitty gritty of how did electronic devices affect sleep what we then wanted to see was okay from a practical point of view if we take away the devices does that improve sleep so sort of looking at the opposite I guess or just looking at it in a different way so we started off with the water polo players and they were at the Australian Institute of Sport for a national development camp um, so there were 100 athletes all at this camp and we recruited some of them to complete our study. So with the study they were divided into two different groups and the first group were allowed to use their devices however they normally would and then they would wear an actigraphy watch overnight so that we could monitor their sleep via that method. The other group had to hand all of their electronic devices into me so their phones, their laptops, their iPads in the evening so just after dinner and then they would get them back in the morning. People are going, boom, 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 <laughs> hand in my device. That's the reaction I got from athletes. <laughs> so they had to do that every night of the camp, which was seven nights. Um, we had a lot of drop-off when people found out they were in that condition, which you know, <laughs> I hoped wouldn't be the case, but I suppose you know, listeners might say that they would probably have been in that position as well, and they would have pulled out. Um, we had one athlete who I had to go and knock on his door every single night and I was like, please give me your phone, you said you would. <laughs> but generally they were pretty good. Who, um, who was worse about giving up uh, devices, males or females? Um, I didn't really notice a big difference in gender. Okay. They were pretty even for gender. The, re- the reason I asked before people are jumping down going, oh, what does that guy do anything? I see Annabelle. <laughs> is when I ran a study a couple of years ago at the IS looking at electronic devices and removing electronic devices all but one of the ladies went ballistic you're not taking my phone blah 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 it was near on abuse I was like whoa alright it's just a study it's not the end of the world all but one yeah. and it was a big division and it was noticed by the sort of researchers and the physiology staff of the divide in electronic devices and that paper was published in um, the Journal of Strength Condition Research an American journal where we looked at judo athletes but it was it was pretty interesting like just basically one group was males and one was females yeah so that's the reason i asked that question yeah no no real gender differences in i suppose any of the studies like the netball study was obviously only female so i can't make any um any statements on that but for the triathlon and water polo studies yeah i didn't really notice a difference which was good um but yeah so so with that study we was as i said we were seeing whether taking away their devices would improve their sleep um, and when we looked at the, the data, I looked at night one, 
And on night one, those who didn't have access to their phones and laptops and tablets went to bed earlier. And I thought, score, that's good. And they slept for longer and they spent longer in bed. And I was like, this is great. And then by night two, there was no difference between the groups. That's exactly what I found. Yeah. <laughs> I continued on that yeah. over the rest of the camp with no other differences. And I was like, oh man, yeah. that's pretty frustrating. But I think sometimes like, athletes coming from who may be working part-time or just getting there might have had a big first day. I think there's this kind of like, oh God, exhaustion and massive sleep on the first night. Yeah, could do. I suppose, you know, the way I looked at it as well as they didn't have the device to distract them. Yeah. And, you know, they were the first night on a camp, so they don't necessarily know everyone there. And they thought, well, nothing else to do. May as well go to bed. So, yeah. you know, yeah, probably catching up on any accumulated sleep debt over time. But then by the second night, you know, they, I don't know, they'd had their catch-up sleep or they'd met other people. They'd realised, oh, you know, you don't have to just go on Facebook. You could go and talk to people face-to-face. You what? <laughs> what is this concept? <laughs> Yeah, well, that could be a bad thing as well, because I know from working with grappling athletes or MMA athletes who are at the IS in a study that got published recently on weight cutting, that although we didn't take electronic devices away from them, we had them locked up in a... Well, not locked up. We had them segregated in a different sleeping block because we were controlling their diet and so on. Mm-hmm. By the seventh night, they were like a bunch of animals. It was like Lord of the Flies. We had 22 males, <laughs> all like combat sport athletes. Yeah. And by the last night, they were just... They, it was on. They were up at two or three o'clock in the morning, jumping around, playing joke tricks on one another, joking each other. And that sort of just built throughout the week. And it's good because it's a sign of camaraderie. And it's, you know, it, there's other benefits to that because the gel is a team and they were, and even not a team, but they're working together during the day or sitting around talking in the evening, the very same thing. Mm-hmm. But on the same hand too, it starts reducing the opportunity for sleep. So it's a fine balance of, you know, getting a good culture with a group and also not yeah. having them up till two o'clock in the morning messing exactly <laughs> yeah yeah because when we so we replicated this study with the triathletes at a separate camp um, on the gold coast in queensland um, and they were also doing a national development camp um, so we thought we'll replicate this study and see if it's any different and again there were no differences well there were no differences on any night for this camp it was only a four night camp but still both of the groups were going to bed at the same time but they were outside playing basketball and talking to each other and sitting in groups and things like that so the conclusions i had from this study were that it didn't necessarily improve sleep so t- don't you know don't necessarily take away the devices with the the aim of improving their sleep but there could be other sort of benefits from it such as that camaraderie that you talked about yeah so it could still be advantageous but just not necessarily in the in the way that you might have thought. So these studies, Maddie, you had some in the, one in the lab, some in the field. What's harder? Or what's more difficult? Or which would you prefer? Lab-based or field-based? Or what's the kind of... Could you kind of compare and contrast the differences in them as well? Sure. So the lab-based studies, as we talked before about our basket case months or weeks or days or however long it was, the lab-based studies were hard... Um, personally just from having to stay awake for those nights but I still preferred them over field-based studies. Field-based studies are great for practical applications but from a research point of view it's really difficult to control these factors so you might have noticed when I said those electronic devices we collected phones, laptops, tablets doesn't include TV because there was no way for us to control these 
select athletes and make sure they didn't go near a TV. In these recreation um, rooms and so on, yeah. Yeah, and stay away from their friends who were using their phone, like put blinkers on them so they didn't see. So it's really hard to control those sorts of things in the field. Um, you've also got the, the limitation of pace, uh, of actigraphy, sorry, that we sort of mentioned before, that it's not very sensitive at detecting wake and sleep. They can't tell you what stage of sleep you're in, so yeah. it's not as scientific, I guess. It's not as accurate. Um, so I definitely think that was harder, um, trying to control for those sorts of um, variables with doing field-based studies. Um, we also sort of, I suppose, talked a little bit about the limitations of PSJ before. You know, the, the participant has to be at a sleep centre um, or they have to be in a very controlled environment. And it that, costs a lot of money. It, yeah, it does cost a lot of money. Like, you know, you can't put someone through for five nights yeah. unless you've got a really good research grant. Um, but yeah, so that's why you generally do one-off studies. So, you know, it's it's got those sort of limitations, but it's such a more accurate way of testing. And when they're in the sleep center, you can control so much more. You can make sure they don't have access to their friends' devices. You can make sure they're not standing outside playing basketball in the courts, you know, things like that. So I think PSG is a lot more accurate, but has practical limitations. On the other hand, field-based studies with actigraphy is more practical, but you can't control it as well. So yeah. it depends a little bit on on what you're trying to get out of the study um, as to which one you should probably go with. But yeah, personally, I found the field-based studies quite hard. I, I tend to agree with you uh, because the field-based studies I, I've been involved in, particularly in a camp environment like a DIS, been involved in, I think, three now, on average 16, 17 hour days. Mm. It's really hard, you know, you're constantly chasing athletes and you're not just doing your own study, you're helping other people, they're helping you. Mm. You're kind of adding to this experience of the camp and people think you're just like, oh, it's just easy to just tag someone with something and they walk away and you collect data. It's not as easy as that. And then afterwards when you're cleaning data, doing statistical analysis, it can be a nightmare as well because there's so much variation. You're constantly questioning every person, every data point, mm. you know, and like you say, it's, there's just lots more noise in it. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting that you said that. And the other one as well is when you go to a training camp, they're not doing a training camp generally because it's for your research. They're doing a yes. training camp for something else. Yes. So, yeah. you know, what you need to do, if you need them to do testing, if you need them to answer questionnaires, whatever it is, you don't have the first priority. The first priority for the athlete is that they are on a training camp to develop their skills or to... A sports-specific training camp. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it's not about you. You've got to try and fit in where yeah. is suitable and where is applicable without disrupting the flow of that camp. Um, so yeah. you've got to be aware of that sort of limitation as well. Yeah, and it can be quite difficult to try and manage the relationships with the athletes, the coaches, the other physiology or research staff. You've got a lot of kind of relationships between managing, keeping people informed, mm -hmm. looking for optimal times to communicate with people, also having a presence there so people feel like you're part of the group because that's just as important as well. Like if you just went sort of in the morning for two minutes and in the evening, they'd be like, oh, she doesn't care, you know? Yeah. So you gotta be kind of part, you gotta kind of make yourself part of that team very quick, you know? So, sure. so yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely difficult. Um, but enjoyable as well at Samhan too. It's oh, great, it's great insight. Um, so Maddie, overall, um, what would you say is the main takeaways? If there's a coach listening or an athlete or you know, someone who's training a local team or whatever it might be, what would you say is kind of, you know, two to three takeaways that you could say to these these guys and girls that are working or participating in this area mm -hmm. of sport? I think my first concluding point, I guess, or practical application from the research is that 
using an electronic device before you go to bed is not necessarily going to affect your sleep. Um, I know that's not necessarily saying yes, use one or no, don't use one, but I guess it's just meaning that you can be a little bit more lax in your pre-bedtime activities, I guess. If you want to use a device, if you need to use a device, then it's okay to do so. Um, so you can take away some of that, that external pressure or some of that pressure not using one. Um, I'd also suggest that, especially for the coaches, when you're coming up with training camps um, and you know, developing these camps and thinking what sort, of, what sort of features you might include in it, taking away devices from athletes isn't necessarily going to improve their sleep, as we've discussed with the water polo and triathlon camps, but it could be good for other it could be good for other purposes, just not for improving sleep. So if you're wanting to improve sleep, make sure that you're allowing sufficient time periods for them to have a sleep. Uh, make sure you potentially the break in the afternoon that they can go and have a nap and you encourage athletes to go and have a nap. And you can talk to them about how to have good sleep hygiene, um, you know, just good sleep behaviours, I guess it is, rather than just taking away the devices. So think of other ways that you can improve sleep. Um, and I guess as well, just take an individual approach to improving sleep. If an athlete feels like they sleep better after not using a device or not having a device in their room, then go for that. Yeah. If the athlete's sleeping well already, why do you necessarily need to change anything? Obviously what they're doing must be working for them. So if they're sleeping well, don't take away their phone, don't restrict their activities, let them keep going as they are. And so that's probably what I'd summarize from, from my research. And there's still a long way for us to go and there's a lot more research that we can do in this area whether it's individualized or as a group but um, that's probably where i think we're at at the moment yeah excellent so what's what's next maddie what's the what's the future hold what do you what, do you, what are you interested in doing um, i'm not really too sure at the moment i feel like i've finished my degrees and there's a a world open to me and whether it's in sport or academia or sleep science because i've now got skills in all of those different areas yeah. So I'm really interested in all three of those areas. Um, so I don't know, I guess, yeah, see what opportunities are around and whether I can get something that incorporates all three of those. Um, and yeah, just see what happens, I guess. But no definite plans as yet. Okay. Very good. All right, Maddie. Um, so thank you very much for your time and explaining that overview of your PhD thesis. Um, when do you think you'll know about your pass, fail, rejected, accepted, minor revisions, all that? Did, did, were you given any proposed dates? Uh, no proposed date, but as I handed my um, thesis in just prior to Christmas, I'm assuming they probably would have sent it out around now. So maybe six weeks or so from now I should get feedback. Well, that's what I'm hoping anyway. So I'm going to enjoy the next few weeks of not having to think about it too much and then focus on it once that comes back. But I mean, if it's 99%, 99.7. 99.7 probability <clears throat> suggests that it should be okay. <laughs> Unless I'm in that unlucky 0.3%. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it's me and you. Um, yeah. So what we'll do, Maddie, is um, on the show notes here, we'll put up some links to some of your existing papers that have been published. People can have a, a gander at those. And um, yeah, people want to get in contact with you around maybe working with them or have more questions we'll put the info on there as well yeah, sure. but uh, yeah thanks very much Maddie, and all the best in the future with it, no matter what you decide to do thanks Ian same to you cheers brother fellas in the back sweet singers in the front cruising down the freeway in the hot hot sun suddenly red blue lights flash us from behind loud 
voice booming, please step out onto the line. Ballot bridge words of comfort, Cena just hides her eyes. Policeman taps the shades and sell a Chevy 69. How bizarre. How bizarre, how bizarre. Destination unknown as we're pulling for some gas. Officially placed the poster, reveals a smile from the pack. Elephants and acrobats, lions, snakes, monkey. Bella speaks righteous, Sister Cena says funky. How bizarre. How bizarre, how bizarre. Ooh, baby.